Well, Friday night after a football game, my wife and I went to the edge of the stands right on the near the sideline and there was a fence separating us from the team and we wanted to congratulate uh, the guys for a great game and a win and we wanted to see our son in particular. And my wife uh, exclaimed kind of with delight. She said, you know, I haven't had a picture taken with him with his uniform on this, this season and I want to get over there and do that. And so he was standing right there and he was eager and she was eager and I had the camera and she was like, well, how do I get there? And there was a pretty high fence and I just said just jump it babe just jump it you're good and she expressed her reluctance and she looked down at where the nearest gate was I said what why don't we do this why don't you do this just sit on the fence and and see how it feels look down see how it feels and then if you feel good about it you you can jump if not you can you know take the the long way and she just in one fell swoop sat on the fence and jumped and uh, all day yesterday all night last night she had her leg up elevated with the ice on and just nursing uh, an injury. When something hurts, when there's pain, physical pain, the inevitable question is, how long is this going to hurt? How long is this pain going to be with me? And that is, I think, all the more true with emotional pain. There is physical pain. How long is my knee going to hurt? There's emotional pain. Why doesn't my husband love and care for me? Why isn't he wise? But with both of those, we want to know how long is this pain, physical or emotional, how long is it going to endure? What pain are you going through this morning? You guys at home, what pain are you going through? Physical, emotional, is it related to, in any way, to the crisis? It seems everything is, right? But what pain, what is, what is your pain? What is it that you're going through? Maybe, maybe it's a bad diagnosis. Maybe it's divorce papers. Maybe it's a pink slip. Maybe it's just the frustration and confusion and anger that's happening uh, in our world. It's affected you. Psychologists are telling us increasingly as they talk about pain, specifically the trauma side of pain, that trauma is about, it's not so much what is taken from you, but what is left with you. What's been taken what is this crisis taken? Besides your routine, has it taken a relationship? Has it taken a job? Has it taken a certainty away from you? Has it changed something in you? What has it taken from you? That's very real and it's important as we'll learn today or be reminded of to, to acknowledge that. But what has it left you with? For some, it, it is that fear and that frustration and that division. It is anger and it is a tendency to fall into explanations like conspiracy theories for instance uh, this spring and summer particularly the early part of the summer i would receive emails from people hey preacher hey robert check out this documentary on youtube and it would have something to do with you know the a, a vaccine being invented and everybody by mandate being injected and it's the mark of the beast, the end of times. Anybody see those or uh, share those? It's easy to want to explain everything and to fall in with your frustration and your anger to fall into conspiracy theories. When I was in college, a guy who was president named Ronald Reagan, his full name was Ronald Wilson Reagan. I remember attending a, a church-based Bible study where uh, the leader was talking about, you know, Ronald Wilson Reagan. There's six letters in his first, middle, and last name, six, six, six. Therefore, he's the antichrist when we experience trauma when we experience pain there is a desire in us to explain things 
things, to make things in the midst of what we can't explain. We want to make things, force things to fit into categories. Trauma is not so much about what's been taken from you, but what's left in you because of that pain. Have we ever been through this before? Some of you know we have been. Take a look at a headline. I know some of you, this has come up on some of your uh, intellectual radars. This was 101 years ago, November 7th, 1918. This is a public notice, a decree from a mayor in light of the Spanish influenza. Notice is hereby given that in order to prevent the spread of Spanish influenza, all schools, public and private, churches, theaters, movie movie picture halls, pool rooms, and other places of amusement and lodge meetings are to be closed until further notice. Here's a memo from the mayor. We've been here before. As a society, we've shut things down and we've fought and we've worried and we've tried to think about public health, well-being, and safety, but at the same time not live with fear and just a stifled sense of well-being. The Spanish flu, we got past that without a virus, without treatment. We got past it, and it yielded itself to, as some of you have learned recently, 100 years later, it yielded itself to a whole decade called the called the Roaring Twenties. And the Roaring Twenties was a time, a season, 10 years plus, of largely... Now, farmers had some issues if you study it deeper. Uh, there was some pain, of course, in the land. But largely, it was a time of revelry, a time of prosperity, a time of invention. The Twenties, I learned this week, it gave us things like Wonder Bread and Wheaties it gave us chocolate Yoohoo bars and Baby Ruth candy bars and Velveeta cheese. Prosperity, invention, apparently calories. We partied and we celebrated. There are things, listen to me, there are things after the pain. There is life after the trauma. We're reminded in these few weeks as we walk through this story, if you're just tuning in or just showing up for the first time, we're looking at a man named Joseph. The sermon bumper video probably showed you that if you were paying attention. We're in Genesis 37 to 50. I told both services last week that if you have trouble following me at any time, just make sure you're reading Genesis 37 to 50. And that is the account of this man, Joseph's life. And when we introduced to Joseph, he was a young man. Y'all remember how old the scripture tells us when we introduced, when we were introduced to him? He was... 17 years old, just 17. You guys recognize the name Michelle Tafoya? Sports fans, she's a sports journalist and a good one. And like many sports journalists offering cultural insight and she's on social media sharing about her life. And several months ago, she posted this. I got a kick out of it. Any parents probably do. It's so exciting. My son turned 14 and now he knows everything, everything. I don't have to tell him anything anymore because he already knows. In fact, he knows more than I do and more than his dad does. We couldn't be more thrilled. What a joyous time. (laughs) Don't you hope that son is, has a flip phone and not a smartphone, that they're not, he's not on social media, but uh, sarcasm can be good for a family, can it? And also super destructive. But she just dropped it, didn't she? Listen, Joseph, Joseph didn't know it all, but like Michelle Tafoya's son and 
like a lot of us when we were that age, and some of you are raising kids right there now, they think they know it all, but they don't. And Joseph similarly had that element of pride. And so historically what we know about Joseph is God gave him dreams, God gave him a promise, and as always, as always, unlike you and I, God is good always on his promises. And what was the promise to Joseph? That you will become a special person and you will do a significant thing. And Joseph did. But as we're learning, it was only after a painful, traumatic 13-year detour. That's hard, isn't it? Y'all remember the show Gilligan's Island? They went out for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. And then the wreck and they got shipwrecked and... uh, sitcom was developed out of it and everything just worked out so pleasant but detours unlike gilligan's island can be painful this is what we set out to do this is how fast i wanted it to be i was thinking a few hours here god can't you do this in three hours god can god can do anything but he wants us to be ready and joseph wasn't ready and so into this where we left off last week was Joseph learned. He didn't know it all. He learned that he didn't know it all. He learned that he needed to depend on God and that he couldn't do what only God can do. Valuable lesson to learn. We picked off, picked, and we pick up today in Genesis 41. We'll just look at a few passages in Genesis 41 and in Genesis 42. So these will be, most of these verses I think will be on the screen. I'm going to read from my Bible today. Anybody uh, we're readers this summer, this season, and you're wearing your mask while you're reading, and then you, you, you go from hot to cold or cold to hot, and so your, your, your glasses, they steam up, they fog up, and so you're wearing a mask, and your glasses are fogged, and then you just fall down and go fetal and start crying. That happened to anybody? Yeah, me neither. Genesis 41, verses 33 to 40. Um, let's read that together. Genesis 41, 30. To 40, am I there? 33 to 40. All right. Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning and wise man and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh proceed to appoint overseers over the land and take one-fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt during the seven plentiful years. And let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up grain under the authority of Pharaoh for food in the cities and let them keep it. That food shall be a reserve for the land against the seven years of famine that are to occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish through the famine. Okay, so seven years of prosperity, seven years of famine. Verse 37, this proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, can we find a man like this in whom is the spirit of God? Bear in mind that Pharaoh is not a believer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. Wow, what a transition. What a promotion from prison, okay, from being in prison to being over everyone in the land of Egypt, the governor or the prime minister leading everybody. And here's what's really important to notice. Joseph, I'm sorry, Pharaoh, not a believer, sees something in Joseph. He sees something different in Joseph. It'd be a good point now, since you drove to church or you 
tuned in online to church to stop and think about yourself for a second. We read a lot of historical facts in these verses about an ancient man named Joseph, but what about you? What do people see in you? What do people who don't believe in God see in you? One more time, what do people who don't believe in God see in you? A couple of thoughts here to think about. The first is this. To have influence in the world, we have to be different than the world. Another thought. When I follow the crowd, I usually get lost in it. I'm raising three kids to varying levels of uh, imperfection, trial and error. But man, I want this for my kids. I want my kids to not just follow along with the crowd. I want it for you. My pastor's heart comes out here and says, I want it for you. If we just realized, y'all have heard this before, but we get on social media and we compare our insides, all the junk down there with other people's outsides, and we fail to realize how much discontentment is out there, how much purposelessness is out there, all the brokenness, the lack of wholeness, the lack of integrity, the selfish gain, the hearts that are divided in Pharaoh, not a believer in God, sees something in Joseph. He sees something different about him. What's different about you? In crisis, what's different? Pressure, you know what pressure does? Well, you can tell me your story about pressure, right? Pressure does a lot, but let me drop a truth on you. Pressure reveals the contents of what's inside. Pressure reveals the contents of what's inside. It's in a crisis that we find out what is in us. And what we see is somebody taking notice of somebody who is different. Again, pride is being removed from his life. So it can be a good thing. It's not to be, I want to stand out so I can be outstanding and noticed and applauded. Not that. But I want to be different. I don't want to follow everything as culture does. Romans 12 is a great promise. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you think? Is it like everyone else? Paul doesn't say in Romans 12, be transformed by exercising. Be transformed by church attendance. Don't, you know, be transformed by reducing your intake of sugar. All those are good things to do. But he says, Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let God affect how you see things. And Joseph went through all of this, but he saw things differently, and Pharaoh was able to see that in him. The next few verses in Genesis 41, verse 50 and 52. Before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Eseneth, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore them to him. Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, for he, he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second he called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. What does what Joseph named his sons What does that say about him? What does it say about the work of God in his life? 
he made me forget the hardship. He reminded me of how, of the fruitfulness, even in the midst of affliction. I've taught this before, but I'm telling you, there's sometimes I sit and I plan and I strategize with women and men and leadership and ministries, and then we do something and we think it's going to be fruitful and we never really know. Sharing the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God, that's success in the Christian life. We can't orchestrate success. We can't control outcomes. We live with the illusion that we can, but we can't. And Joseph is saying, I named one of my boys this because I was fruitful in affliction. Some of the best ministry you'll ever have is not when you're strategizing in some church setting or making human plans. Some of the best ministry you'll ever have is people close to you who see you in hardship when you are being afflicted. Pressure reveals the contents inside. What do people see coming out of you in this season, in this crisis? What do people see in you? Well, we see Pharaoh seeing something different in Joseph. And we see Joseph living differently and saying, God, I forget this hardship. Now, stay with me for a second. I'm not trying to discount the literal nature of what we read in the English translation of our Bible. But the word forget here is not how we would probably use it. But he's saying, what has happened to me? Hey, I can get over that. It's not going to define who I am. Somebody said that if you're, if you don't, if you're not, if your past is not transformed, you will transfer it into your future. And Joseph is essentially saying that God has changed this in me. He has allowed fruit to come of this, even in the midst of this affliction. Joseph had this opportunity. He had an opportunity. Let's read what's left of Genesis, and then I'm going to draw three big points out. Genesis 41, 56 through Genesis 42. So the last couple of verses of chapter 41 into uh, through verse 8 of chapter 42. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. For the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? Why, why are you standing around looking? That's how it's translated. Why are you just standing around and looking? And he said, behold, I have heard that there's grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land what favor God gave him through Pharaoh. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Those same brothers that beat him and threw him into a pit and lied about it to the father. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Cana to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Joseph had this opportunity for sweet revenge. Do you see that? Oh, what an opportunity. There's a, a story of a guy named Dave, uh, Dave Marler. Dave Marler 
was he, he umpired in a recreational baseball league in Boulder, Colorado. And Dave, as the story goes, Dave Barber got stopped by a police officer one day, and he made a plea. Hey, officer, please, you know, if, if you could uh, extend leniency to me and my speeding, uh, my insurance rates are going to go up. If you could, just kind of help me out on this one. And the uh, police officer said, hey, you take that up with the court. And as the story goes, about a year later, Dave Marler was behind the catcher at home plate, umpiring a game, and the first batter up was, lo and behold, the police officer. He recognized him. They both recognized each other. The officer said to the umpire, hey, how'd it go with that ticket? The umpire said, swing at everything. Revenge is sweet, right? When we're the one in power, when we've been the one set back, and then we have the opportunity to set ourselves over other people. Joseph had this opportunity to do that. He had the opportunity to exact revenge on his brothers, and God worked through this. Do you think, do you think those brothers are sorry for what they did? We see three things that I want to give you this morning. Uh, for you note-takers, that's your cue. Three things uh, characteristic of Joseph that are important that I think you can transfer uh, to your life in trauma and pain And seeing God work in you. The first is, is that Joseph let tears flow. Joseph let tears flow. You'll see it in chapter 42. You'll see it in chapter 43 and verse 30. Joseph had tears. Joseph took time to express what hurt in him. If you don't take time to grieve, you'll fall into other things, particularly addiction, particularly deeper levels of depression. I remember as a young man hearing a talk one time, it didn't sit with me well when I first heard it, like maybe some of you on Sunday mornings at Fondren Church. But the preacher said when it comes to, when it comes to the pain in our lives, we can, we can rehearse it, we can repress it, Or we can release it. And part of releasing is tears. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. In Matthew 27, in Mark 15, in John 11, in Luke 19. Each of these writers who give an account of the life, teachings, ministry, miracles, resurrection of Jesus. They all take time to let us know that he cried that he hurt. I shared this with a, a group of men in a new group that we started on Friday mornings uh, in my office. We talked about being tough. Sometimes you have to toughen up. Sometimes you have to loosen up. Sometimes you have to lighten up. Sometimes you have to release things. We talked about what it means to be emotional creatures. What it means specifically, possibly, to, to be a man and what that, what that looks like. Isaiah 33, we looked at this Friday morning. Isaiah 33 describes a group of men. It says that they, that they're brave men. It wasn't a good time in, during this, this season, but they, they, it says they're brave men ran into the streets openly weeping. Like, not a good thing when your brave guys are running into the streets openly weeping. But there's a time for us to show emotion. And that's what we see with Joseph. He turned and he had tears. He gained his composure, went back to his brothers, and the story unfolds as we'll look at uh, next week. But he had emotion. 
Several years ago, I went to see a movie with some friends. The movie was called Manchester by the Sea. Uh, I, I guess I shouldn't tell you much about the movie. It was years ago, but with Netflix, you may, you may see it. So I don't want to spoil it for anybody. But in this movie, Manchester by the Sea, the lead actor, Casey Affleck, is brilliant. But in the movie, there's, there's pain and there's trauma. Some of it is Joseph-level trauma. But these men never talk about it. They never express it. It's important to grieve. I don't know who needs to hear it. But it's important to grieve. To let the emotions out. My dad was raised without a dad. I remember the first time that I saw my dad cry. He picked me up in fifth grade. My dog had been run over. And when I got in the car, he told me. He told me, but he couldn't tell me without crying. It's the first time I ever saw him cry. I'm afraid some of our kids in their distant future will say that they never saw their father's cry. I'm glad I've looked back at that story and I'm so glad that I, from fifth grade to now in my 50s that I've grown up and I'm not emotionally attached to a dog. I'm just so glad that my pet is not on our church website or anything. It's such a good thing. But it's so important for men, yes, to have composure. For men, yes, to be strong, but for us to cry. So the first thing we see in the life of Joseph as we get deeper into this is that he let tears flow. But secondly, and deeper than that even, is that he let bitterness go. He could have rehearsed it. He could have repressed it. But he decided that he would release it. Years ago, when our kids were little, Susan was gone one weekend. That would happen from time to time. I was in charge, in addition to pastoral duties. Long ago, I'd be in charge of domestic uh, duties as well. And I would usually get neither one of those right. But I remember one particular weekend when she was coming home from Atlanta with some girls, girlfriends of hers. We were sitting at home. We had eaten out all weekend. And Hoarders was on the television. Again, all three kids were little. And one of my kids, as he looked at the television, just offered some commentary. He said, if mom doesn't get home quick, that's what our house is going to look like. And I said, shut up and finish your frozen pizza. There's a book that my wife, I saw it on her shelf years ago. The Magical Art of Tidying Up. You ever heard of that? The Magical Art of Tidying Up. Tidying Up. In other words, don't be a hoarder. You're happier if you throw things away or give things away. Don't hoard. Don't, don't hoard. And in this book, The Magical Art of Tidying Up, the, the writer, she teaches this Japanese art, and I forget there's a fancy Japanese word for it, but she basically says, go in your closet. Go into every room, but go in, into your closet and hold up an item. Just hold it up. And you ask the item, so you're basically talking to your shirts. You hold up the item, the, the shirt, the shoe, the collectible, the keepsake, whatever it might be. You hold it up and you ask it the question, do you spark joy? Do you spark joy? If the answer is yes, what do you do? You keep it. If the answer is no, you throw it away. Hey, resentment, bitterness, anger, malice, bitter jealousy, do you spark joy? No. So you get rid of it. 
you get rid of that. And it's important. Back when I first heard that talk, repress it, rehearse it, or release it. I thought it was trite. I thought it was too clean of a sermon illustration. It was three points that all started with the same letter. It just seemed too removed from the real world. But can I tell you, no matter the level of pain, and as I've studied the scripture, you know, there's Job, there's Joseph, there's Jesus. That's the deepest pain. And not making smallness of any of your pain. But you and I have those same options. Are we going to repress it? Are we going to rehearse it? Or are we going to release it? Joseph let tears flow and Joseph let bitterness go. And the last thing I'll share with you in closing is that not only did he do those two things, but he took the long view. This is life altering. Consider one of the early followers of Jesus. Two of them, in fact, Peter and Paul, real quick. But in 1 Peter chapter 1, it says this, And all this you greatly rejoice. All of what? Anybody know? All this pain and trauma and suffering. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, that could have been insulting to those who lived, those who were Christians in the time of Nero. Study that in history. Christians in Rome at the time of Nero. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Oh, just a little while. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I have learned in studying. Remember, this is first century. Peter's a fisherman, but he knew a lot about trades. People back then, they all had trades. And there were those who refined gold. And to get one ounce of gold, you would have to work through tons of rock tons of rock two as i studied one writer said from anywhere from two tons to 900 tons like what a gap but just tons of rock had to work through for one ounce of gold the refinement the polishing the shining and the goal for the refiner was to look and see his reflection and that is the role of god in our lives that's his desire in you how long does refinement take? Any, any guesses? How long does refinement take in your life? Here's the answer. A lifetime. An absolute lifetime. And it might seem, when you say just a little while, it's only a little while if you take the long view. Remember 13-year detour for Joseph? And we looked a couple of weeks ago, the scripture tells us that he had two more years, like 11 years of pain and trauma. Oh, by the way, you got two more to go. But a little while. Paul said it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. We're afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We are perplexed. We're perplexed about it all. But we're not driven to despair. We're persecuted. But we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. I love the reality of that. 
God never comes to us in our pain and trauma and says, oh, it's just light. It's just, now we are taught that it's a little while, but it's a little while in light of the long view. But being crushed in every way or afflicted in every way, being perplexed, being persecuted, being struck down, those are real. Scripture never says it's not real. But which do you look at? I wonder this morning, what do you look at? Do you look at the fact that you're afflicted in every way or do you take value in the fact that you're not crushed? Do you you just solely focus on the fact that you're perplexed or do you look at the, the reality that you're not driven to despair? You go on, you get up, you move forward in spite of the pain. Joseph let tears flow. Joseph let bitterness go. And Joseph took the long view. Hong Kong Christians there are engaging. They have been for about a year now engaging in peaceful protest. Their fear, now we're debating in America if religious freedoms are being taken away. Many people say, yes, they're taking our right to gather for a public assembly. And so we need to stand up for that. The fight is biggest out west. And some say, oh no, we're not being picked out and persecuted against. It's all forms of public gatherings. But in Hong Kong, they have a real fear. And there's these peaceful protests. And y'all, they're beautiful. They're peaceful. They're, I believe, from looking from this way, they're God-honoring. But they are worried. They have been worried that the communist jurisdiction of those courts over there in mainland China would extend over to Hong Kong. And so take a look and take a listen for a minute at what the Christians are doing. Just a sight and sound of peaceful protest. Joseph and what he's been through, I think of this when it comes to our praise, particularly what Peter mentioned in 1 Peter 1. But it's this idea of why we sing to God. We don't sing to God because life is good. We sing to God because God is good. Let me tell you, that could change everything for you. Everything for you. As Lauren and the team come up, I'm going to lead us as we pray. And we'll stand and sing after this. But would you just for a moment, think about what we've intersected, what what we've learned this morning from Joseph's story about letting tears flow, about letting bitterness go, about taking the long view. Maybe you have been rehearsing or repressing. Perhaps it's time to release. 
to no longer hoard, to learn the magical art of tidying up your heart, the interior spaces of your soul, and saying, this, does this bring joy? Does this spark joy? Can you believe as humans, think about the human condition, how much we hold on to that doesn't spark joy? That nursing that grudge and being angry toward that person or even God, it may give you pleasure, it may give you a feeling of temporary superiority, superiority, but it's not sparking joy in you. Would you stand with me as I pray over you? Father, I pray. Even in the midst of affliction, there can be fruitfulness. Even after harm, there can be this spiritual forgetfulness. The current work, the current reality of who you are and your love for us can superintend the harm done to us, the times when we have been forgotten. God, I pray that no trip is wasted this morning, that no one who woke up and tuned in would miss something today from you. Lord, thank you for someone, though it was so difficult for so long, you provided in such unexpected ways. And there was this worship, even the naming of children to ascribe to your faithfulness. God, I pray for people and for families in this room, God, that you would give us ongoing stories of your faithfulness. That we could tell people, look here, look at this life, look at this name, look at this place, look at this, this memory. And it speaks of when God was faithful in my life. God, receive our worship in Jesus' name.